That story that we read together this morning when I was in Sunday school, it was a story that I really loved. It turns our natural expectations upside down. Samuel has to anoint the next king of Israel. He knows that it'll be a son of Jesse, and Eliab stands before him, the eldest son, tall, good-looking, definitely king material. Eliab puffs out his chest confidently. Jesse watches on with fatherly pride. Maybe not sure yet what Samuel is doing, but sure that if God's got something special for one of his sons, it'll be the impressive Eliab. Then God says no. Samuel says no. And a similar charade is repeated over and over as each brother stands before Samuel and is not selected. We can imagine the surprise, the sullen resentment and jealousy of each young man mounting to outrage when their kid brother possibly not even present when Samuel consecrated Jesse and his sons, is called in from the field. He arrives unwashed, unprepared, and God chooses him, David, to be the next king of Israel. Samuel anoints him, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him in power. Why do we love this story? Well, for me, it was because I was one who was often not chosen when it came to lining up for sports teams. I wasn't fast or exceptional looking or particularly popular. Some of the things I loved to do in that back then were considered to be boys' activities, so I wasn't chosen to do those either, things like playing football. So when I heard this story in Sunday school, there was a delicious sense of delight in God doing the unexpected thing, upsetting the status quo and choosing the underdog. And we all love that, don't we? We loved it when Jerry outwitted Tom, when Top Cat outsmarted Officer Dibble. And I'm glad Christine is here because I put it in when Leicester City won the Premier League. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, and Ian, yeah. When South Korea knocked the mighty Germany out of the World Cup and when the office nerd turned out to be Superman. Why do we love it? I guess because we all feel weak and vulnerable in some way. If we're honest, fear that we will not be good enough, we will not be chosen. However smart, beautiful, athletic or skilled we are, we have a nagging feeling that it's not enough to be accepted by others and maybe even by God. And so we love to see an underdog triumph. Maybe we will be okay. Maybe we will be chosen after all. The key message that comes through in the passage we read is this. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's why I played that trick on Abigail and switched the labels on the cans to remind us that it's what's inside that matters more than what's outside. As an aside, it doesn't mean that God despises what's on the outside. If God has made you exceptional in any area, enjoy it as a gift from our creative God who pronounced his first humans that he made to be very good. Use the gifts God has given you, whether that's physical, intellectual, musical ability, skill in making things, growing things, cooking, relationships. Excel in those things to his glory. They're gifts that he has blessed you with and you enjoy seeing you use them. Eric Liddell, who many of you will know of as the athlete who the film Chariots of Fire was based on, famously said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. So these abilities and aptitudes are gifts from God. There's no occasion for pride. 
He has blessed you with them, but they are not why he has chosen you. There's another verse in 1 Samuel 13 which refers to David being a man after God's own heart. What does this mean? Why did God choose David? And why does he choose us? For one thing, I believe that throughout the Bible narrative we see how God delights in overturning expectations. He chooses and uses the unlikeliest people. In Abraham and Sarah, God called a couple way beyond childbearing age to start a dynasty. In Mary, he chose a teenage girl of humble background as the key to bringing about his purposes. He sent the heavenly hosts to a bunch of smelly shepherds. And through Jesus, he called ordinary men and women and even social outcasts as his first followers. This is our brilliant and beautiful God. He doesn't play by our rules and it can be the work of a lifetime to learn to play by his. Recently, I was talking to someone. He doesn't live in this city, so not known to any of you, but a man who is very unwell physically and mentally unstable. And he started sharing me, with me how God was using him to pray for healing for others. And I felt within me a sort of scepticism rising about whether this guy could really be doing what he was telling me he was doing. And then I realised that that is just the sort of thing that God would do to choose people, the people who we least expect, who we may even believe he can't use, to work out his purpose. And as soon as we start to think that God should be using us because we are so eminently well qualified, we're on dangerous ground. Again and again he delights in revealing his power by using those who know they're not equal to the task rather than those who think they are. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 27 to 29 reads like this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things so that no one may boast before him. God chose the foolish, the weak, the lowly and the despised. And brothers and sisters, we all qualified. (laughs) So, firstly, God chose David because choosing the unlikely is typical of how he works. And secondly, God chose David because of what was in his heart. That's obviously good news, isn't it? I certainly thought so as a child. God wouldn't leave me humiliatingly unselected because I didn't look right or couldn't run fast. He would choose me because he would look at what was in my heart. Maybe I had to be a little older to start to wonder if this was entirely good news. Perhaps it's actually easier to be like Eliab, to look good on the outside and hold things together in public, maintaining a squeaky clean image that may fool everyone except God. Knowing that God looks at what is in our hearts may be daunting as we can't pretend or cover up as we often tend to do with each other. So what is God looking for when he says that he looks at our hearts rather than our outward appearance? Is it exceptional moral purity? Is it consistent kindness, generosity and compassion? Is it hearts that turn unfailingly to what is good and pure and not to what is impure or evil? I know this is going to shock you, but as I look at my own heart, I've come to believe that if God is looking for those things, it would be pretty bad news. 
If God chose you or me on the basis of the purity of our thoughts, our consistent generosity of heart, our unfailing moral fibre, do you feel like coming confidently to the front saying, pick me please, or hiding at the back and hoping he doesn't notice you? What was it then that made David a man after God's heart? As we look at David's later story, it seems unlikely that what God saw in him was exceptional purity, uprightness and moral fibre. He was a man who later committed both adultery and murder, a man who was sometimes angry with God, ran away in fear, feigned insanity to protect himself and once brought disaster on his people by his disobedience to God. So unless David was a pure and moral youngster who ran into trouble later, he wasn't chosen because of his righteousness and purity. So what was it? As we look across both David's life and scripture as a whole, I think it's safe to say that God's choice is based not on what we deserve, but on his grace, his own unearned, unmerited favour, goodness and generosity. We'll come back in a minute or two to talk a bit more about what it means to be chosen by God. And I believe, looking at the life of David, that what God saw in David that made him a man after God's heart was his humility, his dependence on God, his willingness to repent when he did wrong, a heart that was not consistently blameless, but was consistently open to God. As we look through the life and the Psalms of David, we see a man who's almost painfully honest about his doubts and struggles. A man who, despite his position of power, is aware of his own weakness and his need of the God he dearly loved. So God chooses and calls us because of his grace and kindness, not because of our outward or even inward excellence. When he looks on our hearts, what pleases him is honesty, humility, openness to him and dependent trust on him. This is not about God compromising his holiness and generously turning a blind eye to our failings. It's about God himself resolving the problem we're unable to resolve through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. To David's admission of failure and repentance, God would say, I know, I'm going to deal with it myself, you're forgiven. And to us living after the cross, he says, I know, I have dealt with it already. I said I would come back to what it means to be chosen by God. I'm going to put two austere gentlemen up on the screen. With apologies to John Calvin and Jacobus Arminius, we've got about four minutes, I reckon, to look at one of the great doctrinal debates of the last few centuries. I won't be covering it in full depth. (laughs) Does God choose us or do we choose him? That's essentially, if you could put it in a sentence, what they disagreed about, and people have been arguing about it ever since. I think it is something, it's quite an abstruse theological argument, but it is also important because it affects how we pray, affects our views of evangelism, and how we relate to other people who are are not believers. So, on the one side, we have Mr. Calvin, with the belief that God chooses and calls believers according to his sovereign will and purpose, that he predestines plans in advance who will and will not believe, leaving little space for human choice, leading to the painful idea that God deliberately chooses some 
and deliberately rejects others. While this makes many of us feel very uncomfortable, there are verses in the Bible that appear to support this view. I've just put a couple up there. There are many more. If you really want to go into this, you could Google biblical evidence for Calvinism and you'll find a lot more. But the two I've put up there, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 2, to God's elect who have, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And Romans 9, verse 18, Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. On the other hand, with Mr. Arminius, Arminius argued against the doctrine of predestination and emphasised the free choice that every human being has to respond or reject God's grace. From this angle, although God may know in advance what choices people will make, he does not control those choices and they are genuinely free. There are, of course, Bible passages that support this view too. Again, I've just put a couple of them up there. So um, the idea that God desires all people to be saved, that he hasn't selected a a chosen few. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And the second one, the idea that God allows humans to resist his will. He doesn't force his will through. So the reference to the Pharisees rejecting God's purposes and uh, Jesus' sorrow over Jerusalem, that they, he had longed for them to come to him, but they rejected him. So what is it? Are we called and chosen by a God who is absolutely sovereign and can do whatever he wants, whether we like it or not? Or do we have complete freedom as to how to respond to God calling us? Well, I believe the answer is yes and yes, that God is absolutely sovereign, and yet we have genuine free choice in responding to him. And this is what we call a paradox, where two seemingly incompatible things are true at the same time. I heard someone recently, I was listening to something at Easter, and he came up with the phrase, for all your theological dilemmas, take paradox, which I thought was was quite good. (laughs) So uh, is this a cop-out when we can't understand something or we can't explain something, just going, oh, it's a paradox? Uh, but I don't, I don't think it is that. I think that it's about the fact that we worship a God who is completely beyond us, who is greater than us, who created us, but is greater than our understanding. So living with some mysteries in our faith where we believe something is true, but it's quite hard to actually explain it in, in simple logic, I think it's about that and that we have to live with some things that are hard to understand. But stepping back and looking at the... Sorry. Just struggling to get it forward, that's it. Um, Stepping back and looking at the bigger picture across the whole biblical narrative, there's no doubt that God chooses, but it seems that he chooses in order to include, not to exclude people. So in Genesis 12, God chooses Abraham and says, All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. He has been chosen in order that the whole earth may be blessed, that the whole earth may be chosen. In Isaiah 46, God declares his plan for his people Israel. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. They too have been chosen, so the whole earth will see God's light and salvation. Jesus' disciples were chosen not to delight in their exclusive chosenness, but to be sent out 
to bring blessing and healing to others. And we as the church too, as 1 Peter tells us, are chosen for the blessing and benefit of others. So 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So it seems the overall pattern of scripture is that God chooses individuals and groups, but with the intention of using them as part of his plan to include everyone who is willing to come. I heard someone bring those two parts of the paradox together that we mentioned earlier by suggesting we visualise a gate or archway with a clear message on the outside saying, all welcome, come on in, or in the old language, whosoever will may come. We go through that gate, we respond to God's invitation and pass through the gate And as we're standing on the inside of the gate and look back at it, we see on the inside, chosen before the foundation of the world. So it's like God is saying, you had a genuine choice, but I always knew what choice you would make. So just we're going to summarise now. Just think for a moment about how this impacts us. We see in the story of David's anointing that God chooses and calls people but not due to their outward or even inward excellence, but because of hearts turned towards him in humility, trust and dependence. So the key question there is how is your heart and mine? Are we putting our confidence in our appearance and our talents, even our giftedness at serving God? Or more subtly, are we rejoicing privately in our moral superiority congratulating ourselves on being good disciples. When God looks at us, I believe that what he is looking for is that we are coming to him in honesty, humility and loving dependence, accepting that his choice of us and ours of him flows from his grace, demonstrated supremely in the cross of Jesus Christ, which we have never had any way of deserving. I believe that it is this attitude and the life that flows from it that leads to God saying to us that we are a man or a woman after his heart. And really, what higher ambition in life could there be than that?